What's going on, everyone? It's Xavier Williams here, and we are back for yet again another podcast episode on the Redefine Education podcast, where we bring black male educators to the table and have a conversation about solutions for the classroom. I'm excited about today's podcast, and I think it's going to be a great one. Before we get there, though, we're talking about the achievement gap, something that's very important in education today. Before we start this conversation, do me a favor, share this podcast with a family member, a friend in education. I'm excited about the wisdom that's going to come from the podcast series and these episodes. So get your water, get your tea, get your coffee, your iPad or your notepad, whatever you need, because we are getting ready to redefine education. We'll be back shortly. going on everyone welcome back we're here for episode number three man uh we are on episode three i think i would say for every episode this is a dream come true so just be prepared for that to go on every episode i'm so excited i hope you enjoyed the episode from last time i mean what an amazing opportunity to get to talk uh and just have some genuine conversations about how we can make education better and redefine education. I won't delay any further because man, I am sitting in front of a wonderful black male educator all the way from Suffolk, Virginia. And if you don't know where Suffolk is, uh, the highways are clear. You can drive through and the police won't get you. No, I'm joking. Uh, but I'm <laughs> sitting here with an amazing black male educator, one of which I was able to meet through a connection of mine through Laura Major, who serves on the Board of Visitors at JMU, and said, you need to meet with uh, this gentleman here that I get to have the privilege of serving on a board with. And so without further ado, I am sitting in front of Dr. John Gordon III, Superintendent of Suffolk Public Schools in Suffolk, Virginia. Dr. Gordon, welcome to the podcast, sir. Uh, Xavier, I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, it's probably no secret or no surprise that your third episode features Dr. John V. Gordon III. Yes, sir. Um, I know you've had some great educators in your prior episodes, and a lot of us have a lot in common. And I'm just here to kind of provide some different perspectives, some different viewpoints, really try to put the pieces together, because I think that we're on to something on how to not only redefine education, but how to save the field of education yeah. and how to do some things differently so we can eliminate some of those achievement gaps that you previously mentioned. Yeah, and that's what the whole episode today with you about, uh, you know, we were able to have a conversation. We were able to talk on Zoom and just get to know each other uh, a little bit. And and as I mentioned, you know, Laura said, you've got to meet Dr. Gordon. There's something special about Dr. Gordon. I believe he can add some value to your podcast. And so one of the things that I noticed from reading your bio was that the achievement gap is not something that uh, you truly have put a lot of work into, uh, but it's something that you truly as an educator have been able to help uh, decrease that gap uh, for students, but specifically those that are of the black and minority background. And so a lot of what we'll talk about today is that achievement gap and you giving us words of wisdom of how we can address that in the classroom. But before we get there, I would love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit. Give us a you know, synopsis of who uh, Dr. Gordon is, and let's get to know you a little bit. Yes, yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, a proud product of Hermitage High School. 
uh, class of 1991. I went to the University of Virginia, uh, BA in psychology. And the interesting thing is when I first got to UVA, you know, I was attempting to walk onto the basketball team there. I actually wanted to be a sports therapist. I saw myself being a physical therapist for a professional team. And those were my dreams probably up until I took human anatomy and physiology. <laughs> and that kind of changed and redirected everything. But I really had a love for psychology from Tim Donahue, who was my psychology teacher at Hermitage. I took that for two years and kind of really fell back into it at UVA. It's one of the best decisions I ever made. I'm really understanding the science of the mind, how people think, how human behavior really tries to determine uh, how society interacts with each other. And you can kind of actually use it as some predictors. Um, so when I graduated from college with a psychology degree, I didn't really understand or know what I wanted to do. Um, had some offers to, to work for Life of Virginia, who no longer exists in insurance and New York Life. And I almost took the job with New York Life. I was pretty close to doing it until my manager at the time told me, okay, now what you have to do is really build up your clientele. Now, I'm 22 years old. I don't have any clientele. All yeah. my friends are either just graduating and getting on their feet like I am, or they're actually still in college. Uh, so then I made the decision um, to move my wife at the time to uh, the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I was a uh, substitute teacher in Wacomico as well as Somerset County making 40 and $50 a day. Wow. You know, so this is 1995, 96. I uh, also started to coach basketball um, at Mardella Middle and High School as an assistant coach under Russell Springman. And then the following year, I got my first full-time teaching position at East Salisbury Elementary School teaching fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And I never saw myself as an elementary school teacher, but it was a job opportunity. I really had some supporters that were in the central office as well on the school board because they were also having a challenge and shortage of trying to find African-American males to work in the school division. Yeah. And I could really saw myself, East Salisbury Elementary School at the time was, you know, probably had 100% free and reduced lunch, a lot of crime going on in the area. The kids didn't really have role models around them besides the staff members that they would see or maybe some of their coaches. So I felt I could make a difference. And I did that for one year before we decided to move back to Richmond. And I ended up getting a uh, social studies and assistant basketball coach, JV coaching position in Armstrong High School. And what was wild about that is Armstrong High School is the same school, same building that my parents went to. And as a matter of fact, on both sides of my family, both attended Armstrong. So walking the same halls as them was very interesting. I did that for five years. I became the head coach during my second year, and I kind of made a name for myself in leadership and just overall athletics itself as being Coach Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, when Armstrong was going to combine with JFK, John F. Kennedy High School, uh, during my last year, that's when I began to think about making some moves to some other schools. Uh, became the head basketball coach at Meadowbrook High School in Chesterfield. I uh, did that for six years. I still have the highest winning percentage in Meadowbrook High School history. Wow. Won uh, numerous championships over, uh, you know, that entire six-year time frame. When you kind of add that up with the uh, championships I won in my last year at Armstrong, you know, that Coach Gordon moniker is kind of what probably put me on the map. And then I can remember one day uh, my principal at the time, Mr. Neil Fletcher, came to me and says, you know, what do you think about becoming a dean of students? Mm. You know, we were talking with some of the other administrators. We think you'd be really good at that. And, you know, I had no thoughts of going into administration. I was enjoying coaching. You know, that was the area that I had not only made a name for myself, but we were winning. Yeah. So I didn't want to kind of give that up. He says, no, no, no. As a dean, you can still coach. You just wouldn't have to teach anymore. And I was <laughs> just like, oh, wait a minute. You know, that's kind of interesting. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds really good. <laughs> really good. So I did that for two years. And then um, when one of our assistant principals moved on, he asked me to kind of move up to that position. And at the time, 
uh, Billy Kennedy, who was the uh, superintendent in Chesterfield, he actually was the one that had talked to me about going into administration because mm-hmm. he saw the impact I was having not only with my players, but in the school community at Meadowbrook. And Meadowbrook was the high school that actually was the closest to the city of Richmond. So I began to see some of those same dynamics um, at Meadowbrook High School that I was kind of used to at Armstrong. And so I took that assistant principal job, but what I didn't know in Chesterfield is that you couldn't coach and get the stipend or the extra salary for being an assistant principal because you were paid to actually cover those events anyway. Mm-hmm. And so my last year coaching basketball, I actually coached for free. Wow. And, you know, I took the job late July, early August. You know, we were already into our workouts. I couldn't leave my team behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everything. So my last senior night game, I wore a tuxedo because <laughs> it was my senior night too. And, um, you know, still kind of miss coaching basketball every now and then. But I also decided to leave Meadowbrook because I didn't want to stay in the same building where all the kids and staff knew me as Coach Gordon. If I was serious about getting into this administrative and this educational leadership, I needed to have a fresh start. And so I transferred to Monacan High School. I did that for one year before I got my break as the principal at James Monroe High School in Fredericksburg. And um, I was the first African-American principal in James Monroe High School's history. I also was the first African-American chair of the Virginia High School League. I mean, a lot of barriers that were being broken down after a hundred years just so happened to be the lucky person to do that. And once the history and the times dispatch and the, you know, Richmond free press and the freelance star in Fredericksburg were covering those stories. One of the catchphrases I was using is, okay, even though I'm the first, I have to make sure that I'm not going to be the last. Yeah. I really be able to open up those barriers and doors did that for five years. Uh, you know, during my last year we, we were ranked in the top 7% of high schools in the, country uh, via U.S. News and World Report. I became a director of administrative services there for three years before I returned back to Chesterfield Mm. as chief of schools for uh, two and a half years. And it was interesting how when I left as an an assistant principal, a lot of the people that were my boss, then I come back eight years later and I'm their boss's boss. Mm. So that kind of shows you that you you can really climb the ladder sometimes when you go out and learn different experiences and then kind of return back to share. And and that was great. James Lane, the former state superintendent, was a superintendent in Chesterfield at the time. He had been recruiting me for about over a year. But, you know, it's all about timing, too. Mm-hmm. And so I did that position, as I mentioned, for two and a half years and then started here in Suffolk as a superintendent on uh, October 14, 2019. I just had my three-year anniversary last Friday. I was last, about to say, you just Friday. celebrated the anniversary. Yeah, man. yeah. Wow. And so, you know, Suffolk's a great place uh, that – one of the biggest things I really wanted to do here was modernize uh, some of the things that were, were happening. Also, I'm a really big believer in how our schools look. I think that's the best way to not only improve climate and culture, but also to get students and staff excited about coming to school and coming to work every day. And then really big, really big on pushing the brand of your school division. You want to mm-hmm. get people that's not only excited about it, but to believe in it. Yeah, And that's kind of where we're sitting at right now as we're moving into Start of year uh, three and, let me see, five days. Three years and five days. Yeah. You know, we're we're all counting. We're all counting here. (laughs) We're on a mission. You know, as I said, you know, we want to talk about this conversation of the achievement gap. And one thing that I want to at least make clear, you know, as we're having these conversations on the podcast, the focus is meeting with black male educators and also finding out ways how we can support black male students. Um, supporting minority students, but I don't want that to be an exclusive right. area. 
right? I want that white male educator, that Hispanic female educator, that white student, that, um, you know, Asian student to be considered in this conversation as well. And so can, can you tell me what the achievement gap is? Yeah. Uh, just so we have a base knowledge of what we're talking about. Yeah, so the achievement gap is basically going to be any type of instructional achievement or student achievement specifically uh, range that you see between different rep- reporting groups. Mm-hmm. So in the Virginia Department of Education School Quality Profile, for example, we'll have reporting categories such as black, Asian, um, white, Hispanic, biracial, special education, low socioeconomic status, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And usually, depending on what the subject area is, at the top of the achievement gap, majority of times are going to be uh, white students or Asian students. Mm -hmm. And then the gap is going to be measured between their scores that they may receive in a a specific subject area versus everyone else. Yeah. And then we also have, you know, students who fall into multiple categories. Like if a student is special education, but they're also African-American and they're also a male and they are also living in poverty, then they actually count four times on any school quality profile that you see, mm-hmm. you know, male, female, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, as well as your general education versus special education designation. Those are some of the things that we're working on. And this concept of achievement gap really began in 98, 99, one year after centers of learning tests were actually first distributed in Virginia in 1997, 98. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was at Armstrong High School. I remember that because I can remember my principal at the time, George Bowser, explaining to the school community what it meant. But because it was the first time that everyone had taken the test, no one did well. Yeah. So it took one year to determine what the achievement gap was after schools, especially those that were more affluent and including school divisions, had a better opportunity to adjust because they had the resources to put behind the kids as well as the staff that would allow them to do better. Mm. And your lower socioeconomic schools or your school divisions that have less resources, they're struggling. Yeah. And Suffolk, for example, we basically have had the same achievement gaps for 10 years. Wow. Same ones for 10 years. Our African-American students don't always perform as well as our white students. And our special education students perform, you know, even worse than the other two groups. So those are some of the things that all teachers, principals, central office leaders, superintendents that we're all focused on. Mm-hmm. And it's not a magic wand that you can use that is like can sweep and clean it up for everybody. You really have to customize education yeah. in order for it to be successful. And then you also have to make sure that you're using your data, tracking it cohort by cohort. When I say cohort, I mean when they actually started school. And so one of the conversations that I actually had with my principals yesterday in our SPS leadership meeting is if you're serious about correcting your issues, You build sustainable school improvement plans that not only address what your current students are doing, but you're taking some review and taking some glances at what your upcoming students are doing so the teachers are already implementing what's necessary for them to be strong. That way it won't be the kids learning something new at the same time the teachers are teaching a new methodology, a new pedagogy. It won't be two new things at once. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the key tips that we've really been trying to push out into our buildings. So let let me ask you this question here. Um, just so we can continue to dive deeper into this topic, what are the factors that contribute to that achievement gap, uh, as you were just saying? Yeah, so I think the biggest factor is definitely going to be socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. I think socioeconomic status is the thing that allows certain groups of students to have an advantage. And I'm using that word advantage on purpose and specifically because 
we know that with some of our students and some of our parents, if they're not doing well, their parents have the money to be able to go out and hire a tutor, mm-hmm. right? Be- a lot of our students also were had the money and opportunity to be placed in preschools, um, private preschools. My kids actually went to Primrose when they when they were younger, and that helped not only introduce them to the social side of being a student, but it also gave them a, a early aspects of what was necessary to improve their literacy, learning phonics, um, learning their letters, number formation, those types of things, so that when they're coming in, that level of familiarity allows them to be accelerated. Mm-hmm. The socioeconomic status piece is the biggest play, the biggest factor in achievement gap. But one of the missing pieces is the strategies that you're using to address it. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that you really try to do is you have to be able to allow student interests to help to drive the curriculum because the curriculum is already mapped out because we already know what the standards are. The piece that's missing a lot of times is the active engagement of the kid. Yeah. So you use the kid's goals, you use the kid's interests to be able to bridge that gap. And in Suffolk, one of the first things that we ask our teachers to do with all 14,100 and some of our students is to have them write in their goals during the first week. And then teachers, you look at what their goals are and ask some questions in there to try to determine what their interests are. Then whenever you find out what their interests are, then you use that and the students specifically in lesson examples. Mm -hmm. That increases the engagement. If a kid can look up on the screen or look on the assessment, I used to do this when I was a teacher, I would put my kids' names on the quizzes and tests. And when I'm having reading comprehension stuff when I was an elementary school teacher, when I'm having history lessons, I would have uh, Napoleon Bonaparte is having a conflict with one of his generals, Xavier Williams. I would just throw the name in there. And I would watch the kids as they're taking a test. When they would see their name, they would look up at me and smile. Boom, that kid is now fully engaged in that assessment. Yeah. And then their friends would then notice, hey, your name was on the quiz, your name was on the test. I hope he does the same thing to me. You know, this is part of the reason why I had 100% pass rates. Because the kids understood that I was going to try to make the lesson as relative to them as possible. And then I would try to use a lot of you know pop culture and movies and stories, just clips, sometimes full stories, to kind of bring it to something they can understand. Because the kids, I was a history teacher, so I can't just talk about the American Revolution without comparing it to the Bloods and the Crips, for yeah. example. That was yeah. something I used to do a lot. And those are the things that, because those are the things that are in the news right now, it really kind of put history in perspective for them so that that relativeness was always going to be there. It seems like what you're, you're shedding some light on is the beauty of innovation in education. Um, and another term that I've at least learned or come to hear about a lot in education, this thought of culturally relevant teaching. Uh, another term that's been used uh, around in education so far, and a lot of it has been connected to helping, serving as a solution to closing the achievement gap. Yes. Is implementing culturally relevant teaching practices in the classroom. So I want you to kind of guide us through what that looks like. And then maybe, I mean, you've already given us another example, but some other practical examples, teachers that are listening, educators that are listening, even future educators that are listening right now of how they can implement that in their classroom to help us with this achievement gap. Yeah, I think the first thing that we have to do when it comes to culturally relevant instruction or even culturally relevant teaching is to make people understand that that's not just a black thing. It's not a BIPOC thing. Mm-hmm. That's not a person of color thing. It's actually understanding the kids' cultures, regardless of what they are, and finding ways to include that within the instruction. And you had mentioned the term innovation. For some reason in education, there's too many of us that believe that innovation means that we have to add more technology, 
that we have to be able to have the teacher be some creative genius in order mm -hmm. to get the lesson to catch, right? Yeah. It's really about innovating the kids into the lesson. That's the missing piece. So the information that you gather from the students, the music they listen to, the slang that they use, the way they dress, you use all of that for the relevance. Culturally relevant instruction is relevance to the time period that you're in. So the relevance of what our kids are going through right now in the information age, having everything at their fingertips, being able to research and pull things up instantaneously, having audio books read to them, mm -hmm. that's going to be different than the information that I had when I was in school in the 80s and 90s, basically, that talked about your penmanship, that talked about uh, global warming, that talked about building for your future. Yeah. Like the messaging was different. And so what we have to be able to do as teachers is kind of let go of how we were taught, right? We have to let go of that. We have to be able to understand that the teacher is not going to always be the sole source of information in the classroom. It's really about the kids leading and the teacher facilitating because the kids leading are the ones that give them more ownership. If they have more ownership, active engagement goes up. Mm -hmm. If active engagement goes up, classroom management issues go down. I mean, it's a simple formula, but the hardest part is, as we have a train going through the background, <laughs> the hardest part is getting everybody to understand that partnership between teacher and student. So culture right now, hip-hop culture is the dominant culture in society, yeah. period. Yeah, You can tell by the way the students dress. You can tell by the slang they use, the majority of music they listen to, et cetera. But it's like hip-hop culture. Then if I had to add the next one, it would probably be skating culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, just take a look at the fashion. So use that, use that in order to be able to tie together that difficult lesson. Because we know the pacing guys really aren't going to change. Because even though we know what the standards are, what standards are being focused on, those are the things that rotate every couple of years. But the way that you use strong methodology is using the students as the source of keeping that interest there. I think that's the part many times that's missing in education. And you're very humble in your, your introduction, uh, very, very humble. And I, I want to share, you know, with everyone that's listening that you truly have a phenomenal career in education. Uh, you have done, as you said earlier, things that others have not been able to do. And you truly have a focus on breaking down those barriers uh, to ensure that those that will come after you have a platform mm -hmm. to be able to stand on and truly be able to grow. Uh, I thought it was very interesting in your uh, bio that under your leadership, um, you had a school improvement plan for James Monroe mm -hmm. that focused on closing that achievement gap, increasing minority student achievement in advanced and honors courses. Mm -hmm. And in your final year, it says that James Monroe High School was rated in the top 7% high schools by U.S. News and World Report. That's right. That, that is something a lot of principals superintendents, educators may not be able to say, uh, but for you to do that in a Virginia school um, is amazing. And one of the things I want to shed light to and want you to speak on, what advice would you have for that educator that says, you know what, Dr. Gordon, I don't know if I can do that in my school. <laughs> I don't know if what you're talking about right now, I, I, I don't know if I'm able to do that. You know, how do I have these conversations with my administration? Yeah. Um, how do I have these conversations with my students, family members, for them to be able to understand this is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing in the classroom? What, what advice would you share for those, those so, educators? So the main reason why we got that rating is I just improved the 
total minority population in my AP classes. Wow. That's the main thing that we did. And so in order for that to happen, you really do have to become a salesperson. You have to make the students, especially the students of color or any disenfranchised group, you have to make them feel comfortable of going into this classroom that typically has been homogeneous, mm-hmm. right? And so I had the conversations with them where I actually took the football team and the basketball team, and I put the, the different grading scales up on the screen, right, in the classroom. And I said, all right, you're taking regular English 11, right? Yeah. Yeah, you get an A. Yeah, you get a 4, yes. But if you took honors, you get a 4.5. If you took AP, you get a 5. Now, you're serious about trying to play football at the next level. Why can't you take the same course with a couple of more papers, a little bit more extra work, and get a whole extra point in your GPA? Why can't you do that? And then it, like, it clicked, because I'm not sure if anyone ever had that conversation with them. Then I said, okay, now, now that I got Xavier in here, John, I need you to join him. Because a lot of times, some of the kids wouldn't want to stay in those honors and those AP courses, those dual enrollment courses, because they were the only one. Yeah, I remember being a ninth grader, taking geometry at Hermitage High School, and there was one other African-American female in the class with me. And then when I went to the fourth period where my best friend Tyus was in, there was three in that class. You know, I remember those days. Like, there has to be a level of comfort. And then not only did I have that conversation with the students, then I had to call the parents, or I had the school counselor or the assistant principal call the parents. Say, hey, listen, your, your son is serious about trying to play basketball at the next level. We want to make sure that they're not just going there and the coach has to worry about them academically. Let's prove to them to help their recruiting out. Mm-hmm. They can already handle collegiate-level work. Yeah. Let's get them in these AP and these dual enrollment classes. Yeah. And word spread. And I went to the popular kids that were the captains of the team first. Yeah. Right? Because, again, peer pressure, even to this day, is still the most powerful force in schools. Oh, yeah. So I went to them first and said, I need you to do this. If you do this, I'm going to use you as the model. I'm going to put you in our commercials. I'm going to make you Twitter famous. I'm going to do all these different things to let everybody know that you're going to be the face of this movement. We got it done in one year, in one year. And then all of a sudden you look and then we had other school divisions that were coming to us because that same year that we were in the top 7% of, in, of high schools in U.S. News and World Report, my African-American males also outperformed the white students on the English SOL reading test. Yeah. So UVA then contacts me and wanted to know how it happened. And I think my assistant superintendent, Marcy Catlett, who's actually the superintendent in Fredericksburg now, she helped to put the word out. Yeah. So then myself and one of the other professors wrote a course on, uh, we call it the STAR program, on really accelerating reading for students of color. And I ended up teaching that course at UVA for one semester. Then I also uh, taught that course at Eastern Mennonite for one semester because it began to expand. But the model was there. You, we actually had to go out and recruit the students to join those classes. We also had to sell it to the parents. Mm-hmm. And then the last group I, t- I talked to was the teachers. Because unfortunately, when it came to a lot of those classes, especially at the AP level, in order to take an AP class, <laughs> the teacher was the barrier because they had to write a letter of recommendation. So I had to change the mindset of the staff members, say, okay, we're going to put these kids into these classes based on their potential, not just because you see they have a B in English 10. Do you think that they can handle this work? Do you think they can be successful? Do you think them taking this AP Lit class will help them in the future? And I was, I, you know, psychology again. I would word the questions very specifically to make them loaded so they were actually uncomfortable saying no. Mm. And doing that, then you had to shift it. You had to shift it. And, you know, you still had groups of people who didn't believe it. I remember when I was chief of schools in Chesterfield before I got this job, we were having a conversation with a group of parents at one of our high schools, Clover Hill High School. 
And the discussion we were having is removing teacher recommendations for AP classes. Hmm. And the parents went off. Not all of them, but it was a succinct group. And one of the most racist things that was said, because there's a lot of implicit bias there, you are setting those people up for failure. So because they didn't know my personality at the time, you know, they weren't ready for me to push back. And I asked a million-dollar question, who are those people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the level of uncomfort and silence spread out throughout the whole room. And it, and it became a point where, and I said this when, you know, CBS 6 interviewed me during Black History Month last year, that I actually believe was part of my purpose to be able to give more students of color the opportunity. But it actually, realistically, carries more weight when I have a white male or a white female that's parroting or saying the same thing. Because they expect people like me to be able to fight that battle because I'm an African-American male, because I'm a superintendent in a school division that is, you know, 68% people of color. Yeah. But if I get my friends in Hanover, if I get my friends in other school divisions that are saying these things, my friends in Henrico, Aaron Spencer, Virginia Beach, when they're saying it, it actually carries a little bit more weight because now we have a white leader Mm -hmm. who agrees, who's championing the cause so it just doesn't come off as just, you know, affirmative action from the 90s. It comes off more as this is what needs to happen if you're serious about eliminating that achievement gap. Yeah. And it's good that you were you know, sharing all this information. I know that we're pushing time here, but as I just kind of wrap up the conversation today, very briefly, one of the things that I I mentioned in the intro podcast and I will mention throughout the entire series is I want to ask every single educator, every person that comes on the podcast, one consistent question. What is your why? I strongly believe that when you understand your why, there's a benefit for you to develop the what, who, the where, the how. So very briefly, share with us, what's your why? So with me, you know, the why is how education provides opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any discussion of that at all. That was mandatory in my house. My mother was a former high school math teacher, elementary school principal. My father was a math major, worked for CMP Telephone when he retired from CMP Telephone, taught math at both VCU and Virginia University. And as a kid growing up, if I didn't keep my grades up, I couldn't go outside and play basketball. I couldn't play Nintendo. I couldn't hang with my friends. And so people have to understand that that educational opportunity opens up so many doors for you. Yeah. Like I've actually had people, Xavier, that they looked at me on a resume, right? My name is John B. Gordon III, you know, John, typical English name. And you see University of Virginia undergrad, University of Virginia master's, uh, post-master's VCU, doctor of Virginia Tech. I've had people that I've met who'd never looked at my bio picture that thought I was a white guy. Yeah. Unless they you know, specifically look down at my resume and see Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. And then they get a hint. Mm-hmm. Then they know. But I mean, I've literally had people jump, you know, and do a double take. Yeah. Or if I'm not in my suit and I'm wearing my athletic gear, they don't recognize me. Yeah. And I'll make little comments, oh, it's the suit, right? It's the suit. I understand. <laughs> you know, so my why is to make sure that some of the challenges and struggles that I went through growing up in Richmond in the you know 70s, 80s, and 90s, that the kids today don't have to come to those same battles. Yeah. That I don't want them to be stereotyped because they have dreads, because they decide to put fronts in. Besides, you know, with us, it used to be the baggy clothes. Today, of course, it's the skinny jeans and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't want them to be stereotyped like that. I want them to be judged based on their potential, their academic knowledge, and what they have the skill set to do, 
and what their vision is for life. Yeah. That's my why. We never want to be able to allow the color of someone's skin, their socioeconomic status, or even the educational background of their family to get in the way of them reaching their goals. That's amazing. I want to thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being on the podcast. If there are people that want to get in touch with you and they're like, man, I need to meet this, this <laughs> Dr. Gordon, yeah. uh, how can they get in touch with you? So there's a couple of ways, you know, um, professional emails, sbssoup at sbsk12.net. Uh, but you can always follow me on Twitter at, at DRJBG3. My education consulting firm is schools that inspire.com LLC. You know, we're we really reworking the whole field of education and motivating and inspiring that next generation. Well, Dr. Gordon, thank you for joining us for the podcast today. Uh, really excited about the conversation we had today. And to everyone that is listening, uh, I hope that you will truly take the opportunity to reach out to Dr. Gordon. I mean, a, an amazing educator, but most importantly, an amazing black male educator who is truly transforming the lives of students, faculty, and staff here in Suffolk. And so with that, that's the conclusion of episode three. Amazing conversation on closing the achievement gap and really what that means in education. As always, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure you share this with someone. As I said, these are black male educators who are truly making a difference around the Commonwealth of Virginia. So please help me in making sure we get this message out and share how these educators are redefining education in their own way. Until next time, continue to redefine education. We'll see you soon.